So welcome everybody to the first of these um, five evenings. What we're going to be doing over the next five weeks is the five books of the Pentateuch, which is the traditional name for the first five books of the Bible. And we're starting tonight, obviously, with the book of Genesis. Genesis is a um, hugely complex book, um, so we're going to give it a full hour. Um, there will be quite a few questions that won't be covered, and I will skate over some things incredibly quickly. But what I want to try and do tonight is give you an appreciation for how Genesis works within the context of the other 65 books of the Bible, because this is a foundational book. Um, it is a book all about the beginnings. As I mentioned earlier about the overview of Bible history, um, the Bible tells a story which often we don't read as a story. We don't know how the narrative works, and so we often don't know how we are in that um, what stage we're at during that. And the Bible Overview History series, the, the single DVD with the book, is intended to help you do that. The reason for showing you this is because there's a solid line there on the left-hand side which marks the fact that we don't date the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Those are known as the prehistory. doesn't mean they didn't happen. It just means they didn't happen in what we would call recorded history. In other words, you know, what year was it when Adam was created? We don't know that. Um, an actual fact, as I explain further, that doesn't really even be, um, live as a sensible, a sensible kind of question. So the, um, it is a book of beginnings, and um, a phrase that's repeated through the book of Genesis is this phrase, these are the generations. And, it, and what you're ten, uh, seeing from there is um, this is the, the next outfolding, unworking of God's plan. And I've put down lots of those references for you. Now, one of the issues a lot of people face with the book of Genesis is that they have been told that Moses wrote the, wrote the first five books of the Bible. The Bible doesn't claim that. Although sometimes uh, the New Testament will say, Moses said. Now, it, it, what it means is um, no Jew believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible in that sense. In actual fact, I have a theory, it's, it's probably pretty strong, that Moses didn't write the account of his own death, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Um, so I want to introduce you to something which is known as the documentary hypothesis. Now, this would be quite common amongst modern biblical scholars, and they would see that um, the, the book of Genesis particularly, but lots of the early scripture, has a number of hands at work doing different things. And so the traditional documentary hypothesis says that there are some J sources, and these are a writer who loves to use the Hebrew name Yahweh, and they're probably some of the earliest bits of the scripture, maybe dating to the 9th century BC. Then there are some E documents, where rather than using the Yahweh name for God, the, the writer likes to use Elohim, which is the, uh, just the straight name for God, that means God rather than you know, Yahweh, the divine name. Those are a little bit later. Then there's um, a source that is largely in the book of Deuteronomy, but it also runs through lots of the early part of the New Testament, called D for the Deuteronomist. And then there's a P strand that is, um, stands for priest, and it's somebody who's particularly concerned with order, with the temple, with the religious activity, and it's not just Leviticus, it actually comes into all of um, the scripture and might explain, for example, why we have two creation stories. Now, 
The simplest way of understanding this in the modern era is that don't think of these as being four separate people at four separate times writing, but rather they, they reflect um, people who have collected ancient material and brought it together and edited it and shaped it. And um, we can see that a lot of the scripture is actually very old. So even if it was true, perhaps, that some of this material achieved its final form during the Babylonian exile in the 6th century, we know that what they were working with was very, very ancient scripture. Examples of um, things that would be historical anachronisms, like the use of a flint life in Exodus chapter 4. It's clearly from a very, very old text. And what we know as well is that these texts were passed reliably down through the centuries. Now, no ancient document exists of any type. You know, no Roman documents, no Greek documents, you know, even the plays of Shakespeare. Basically, virtually nothing historic exists in its original form, the first folio copy. Yeah, maybe Shakespeare, but not much. So we've always got things that, are, that are, have come down to us where the earliest extant copy is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Now, to the modern mind, people think, well, therefore, it must have changed a lot over the years because the earliest copy we've got is hundreds of years after the original. Well, that is possibly true from the way that we see things. But actually, the thing about the Bible, the thing about the Scriptures, is that we have vastly hugely great numbers of them compared to any other ancient document. We also know very, very um, clearly now that they were transmitted incredibly accurately over centuries. And we know that because of uh, things like this. So this is um, the oldest fragment of, uh, of the Bible, which was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It looks nice and easy to read there, doesn't it, actually? You can see lots of it missing. What you can't see from that is that that is a, um, an X-ray of a tightly wound scroll that is heavily burnt. So the scholars knew that they would never be able to unroll that scroll because if they unroll it, it will fall apart. Two or three years ago, the, the technology caught up that they could X-ray it so finely that they could actually read the scroll even when it was tightly round, wound round. When they did that, they suddenly discovered that we now have a scroll that's three or four hundred years older than the previous one we had, and it has exactly the same text. So we know for a fact that the texts were transmitted with 100% accuracy over more centuries than we'd ever been able to prove that before. Uh, and, and there's lots of evidence of how um, the oral tradition can preserve stories accurately for centuries, and then the textual transmission is the same as well. So let's come to the book of Genesis. Um, and the issue when we read Genesis is what type of literature is this? What is the genre? Uh, and the point is that even if the final version of the book is quite late, it's very, very ancient. And what it's doing is it's giving us the foundational myths. Now, a lot of people get quite worried when they start reading around the subject and they discover that the biblical stories have a lot of parallels in the ancient Near East. So various Mesopotamian cultures had, um, there was a Babylonian creation story, a Sumerian creation story, and I've listed some of them for you on, on page two. There's the Epic of Gilgamesh that mentions the ancient flood. There's legends of the Sumerian, the Babylonian gods, and a lot of these stories are very, very similar to what we have in Genesis. 
Now, some people have said, oh, well, that just means that the, the Jews came along and they copied the ancient stories. Now, it's probably better to say that there was a coherent and widely believed worldview. So there was a consistent way of seeing the world. And what the writers of Scripture have done is that they have told that story, but they have told it as polemic. Now, polemic is, basically means it's a pointed way of telling the story. They've said, you know those stories, well, you're nearly right, except you've got the heart of the God wrong, and you've got the name of the God wrong, and you've got the plans of the God wrong. And so they've kind of like corrected the prevailing worldview that was going wrong at the time. And essentially, the, the writer of Scripture is saying, no, your gods are not su- supreme. They didn't create the universe. They won't win. This is the true story. You're there, but not quite there. So let's dive into the actual text. And uh, obviously, we start with the creation. Now, this is where if you have lots of questions about dinosaurs, you're going to be slightly disappointed because this is a pre-scientific theological account. In other words, it is not trying to tell us what happened. It's trying to tell us who did it and why. And um, pre-scientific doesn't mean unscientific. So it's quite possible, actually, and um, often modern science does come back with surprising regularity and say, it's interesting that, the creation story in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, seems to be, it's got the order right. You know, I wonder how they did that. But the point is, science is not the concern of the writer. What he's really trying to tell us is who and why, not what and how. Um, The creation story actually has a nice parallel to it, so you'll see that um, days one, two, and three are about forming the heavens and then the seas and then the earth, and days four, five, and six are about filling, filling the heavens, filling the earth, uh, uh, sorry, filling the sea and the air and then filling the land, and then obviously the seventh day of rest. Now, we don't need to believe in a literal six-day creation. I can give you a few reasons for that. The first reason is that there isn't a sun or a moon until the fourth day, so it doesn't make any sense to talk about a day anyway. The other thing is that the word used for day is the Hebrew word that means epoch or age or phase or something like that. It doesn't imply a 24-hour calendar day. The whole point of the story is that the creation is good, Not like the Babylonians said, that the creation was an accident and the product of a war between evil forces. The creation is good, and it is the product of a a loving God, and the summit of creation is humanity. And we are created, according to Genesis 1, to be in the image and the likeness of God, but we are created to rule and to subdue what is there. Now, this is where it's going to start becoming a bit stretching for us on traditional readings. So you'll notice in uh, Genesis 1.26, it says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule and subdue, etc. Now, a lot of people have looked at that, and I've said this myself in the past as well, have looked at that and said, oh, there's a plural there. Let us create man in our image, and maybe this is a, an echo of um, the Trinity. That's a possible reading. More easily, it would be to understand that actually... God is talking to some other people at the same time. Let's do this thing. Now, like the word sheep in English, the word Elohim, which is the word that lies behind that, is 
plural or singular, depending on the verbs around it. What we know in Psalm 82 is that it uses the word Elohim twice. Once it's clearly singular, and once it's clearly plural. It says God, and it means the God that we know, worship, and adore. And then it says the gods, and it clearly means plural, and it means other gods. When you start talking about other gods, you're not talking about polytheism. You're not talking about equal gods, a pantheon of gods. Instead, what we're talking about is many beings who in some senses are supernatural, um, and you could properly use the word divine. So Elohim throughout the Bible is used of Yahweh. It's also used of the other gods that form part of God's council. It's used of the gods and goddesses of other nations. It's used of demons. It's used of Samuel after he died. It's used of the angels, including the angel of God. But in the middle of all of those stories, even though it recognizes that there are lots of supernatural beings, it consistently, the Bible consistently says that Yahweh is incomparable, that he is the creator of all of these. He alone is the creator of everything, including all of them. And you might like to just write down Psalm 29, 82, 89, 97. You can go on. 1 Kings 22, Job chapter 1, Daniel chapter 4. There are lots of portraits in scripture of God being in his throne room, surrounded by angels and powers and principalities, and that's his kind of court. Now, it seems as though, from Genesis chapter 1, that God created us to do the same sort of thing, not for the heavenly realms, but for the earthly realms, to be his stewards, to, to work with him. And the Garden of Eden is a place where God has his way perfectly, and walks and talks and meets with Adam and Eve. And their job is initially to take care of the garden, and as we read on in the story, to take the conditions of the garden and take it out to cover the whole of the earth. That's why it's rule, subdue, fill, all of those languages are used. And so the best way of thinking about what is Eden is that it's a temple. It's a place where God dwells and he meets with his people. And that's why the later tabernacle and temple look like a garden. They have a big lampstand in there that's clearly meant to be a tree when you read the, uh, the description. And again, a lot of the things that are said about it, um, about the garden, are said also about the temple. Of course, when we get to the end of the story in Revelation, everything has come into God and people back together again, all in one place where it, as it should be. Now, so the call then for male and female together to be in the divine image is a little bit more complicated or nuanced than we would often read. So we often read the idea that we're made in the image and likeness of God as if what we are doing is we're reflecting God's nature. And so you'll often hear people say that we're in the image and the likeness of God. That means that we're creative and, you know, because God's a creator, so we're in his image, so we're creative. And that's true, but it's only half the story. It's not only, being an image is not only about reflecting his character, it is also a call upon us to be something and do something. So the image of God is a really important thought. Because if, if Yahweh's garden is a temple, the last thing you put in the temple is an image. And the way the image works in a temple is it gathers all the worship of the people and brings it to the God, but the image in a temple also somehow brings the presence of God 
into the place. And that's the call on humanity. It's not just that we would reflect God to the world, not just that we would be his priests, but also that we would be his stewards. So there's these two themes going on. One is of worship, which is our relationship word, our covenant word, and one is of stewardship, which is our responsibility and our kingdom word. And you'll see these two themes go through the whole scripture. Intimacy and authority. Covenant and kingdom. Relationship and responsibility. Worship and stewardship. And that's why these two themes come together towards the end of the story as God redeems humanity. It says that in Jesus we are a royal priesthood. Royal is authority, kingdom, responsibility. Priesthood is intimacy, covenant, relationship. We are a kingdom and priests created to serve our God and Father according to Revelation. So we are created to, to bear the image of God and to be the image of God to creation. We're, we're priests in his garden, in his temple, and we're kings with authority to take his rule out and extend it, to extend creation that it might be as God wants. A theme that, com- that commonly comes later in Scripture is the theme of walking with God, which is literally what Adam and Eve were doing. And walking with God, in other words, being in his presence, hearing his word, obeying his orders, that then becomes something that essentially is said of the prophets later. So of the prophets, it's said, do they walk with God? Um, do they stand in the counsel of the Lord? Jeremiah makes the point that the false prophets don't, but the true prophets do. Isaiah is commissioned when he stands in the counsel of the Lord and he hears a command and he obeys. So you might like to think of Adam, Enoch, Noah, these ones from the early scripture who walked with God. Don't just think of that as a nice thing about the intimacy of their faith, but actually think about them as being prophets. That's the calling that they're walking in. Um, And I've just listed a few places there when you'll see this idea of the counsel of the Lord. So that's really what's going on, that, that God has created in the heavenly realms, and he has his, his, his angels to, uh, to run the heavenly realms, and he has now created earthly realms, and he's created man and woman to stand in there and to do the same. And the idea is that ultimately heaven and earth will come together, and so we will also be equal to the angels alongside them, which is why Paul says some confusing things in 1 Corinthians 6 about, do you not know that we will judge angels? So our ultimate destiny is to be equal members of the council of God. So that's the first creation story. We now have a second creation story. That's a bit confusing, isn't it? But the second creation story is trying to do something else. Though you'll notice that the first creation story says God created the heavens and the earth. And if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 4, it said God made the earth and the heavens. And um, actually in chapter 2, verse 4, the first half of the verse says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, and then the next bit is flipped around the other way. So that's a, that's a clear sign that we've just changed source, just changed author. And the point is, the first story is heavens and earth, so it's cosmic, it's about God bringing order over chaos, but the second story is God made the earth and the heavens, and it's intimate, and it emphasises the need for obedience over independence. So it starts off by by telling the story of the need for man to have woman. 
And it emphasizes to, uh, Genesis 2 verse 20, the naming uh, of the animals, but for Adam there is no suitable helper. Now, literally, uh, it is uh, the word Ezer. Ezer means a helper. It is not a subordinate. The, the Ezer word is used primarily in the scriptures of God himself. So God is our help and our refuge. God is our helper in time of trouble. That's the word that's being used of male and female interdependence. And then the, the commission is given to them both. Now, we did a series earlier in, in the spring about um, the enemy, uh, truth, and about lies. So this will be familiar to you. But in Genesis chapter 3, what comes into creation, uh, into the Garden of Eden, is not a talking snake. I mean, if it was a talking snake, Adam and Eve would probably have been surprised. And sometimes people think, oh, maybe all the animals spoke in those days. No, this is clearly a divine being. This is a serpent. That's the best translation there. Um, in fact, most Bibles do translate it serpent. I'm just looking down here and seeing that the new NIV doesn't. It could put snake. But the, the word that is used there is nakash, and it is clearly a divine being. The verb form of that noun means to practice divination, uh, divination or fortune-telling. This is a supernatural being. Um, there are puns on this name right the way through the scripture to do with the color bronze, to do with serpents. You remember the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up and those sorts of things. Now the essence of the temptation is he is subtly sowing seeds of doubt to seduce Adam and Eve away from their obedience to and dependence on God. And uh, we've covered this sometimes before, but Eve answers the enemy, but she doesn't answer him according to the heart of God. Uh, in actual fact, she waters down what God has actually said. And um, in Genesis 2, chapter six, uh, verse 16 and 17, We've pointed this out before. When the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, our English translation doesn't do it justice. What it actually says is, of any tree in the garden, eat, eat. But don't eat from that one tree, because if you do, you'll die, die. In other words, the, the, the point of it is generosity, liberality, openness. You can do anything, just this one little thing. And that one little thing is really serious, so don't do it. Now, um, in this temptation, Adam doesn't stand up for his wife, even though we read in verse 6 that he was alongside, and neither of them acts as a high priest to kick the unclean thing out of the garden that shouldn't have been there in God's temple. Uh, Eve sees that the fruit is good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for knowledge, which when Becky was preaching, she highlighted as feed me, entertain me, empower me. And the essence of this temptation is rebel against God, throw off his rule, and redefine good and evil for yourselves. Which is sadly what they do. And the result of the fall then is they're separated from God, they're exposed to shame, um, suffering increases. Interesting, it says that you'll increase your suffering in childbirth. It never says it was pain-free. Um, and they're sent away from Eden. But then there's also this note that um, the judgment on the Nakash, on the serpent, is that Eve's offspring will crush his head. Now, a lot of us think, oh yeah, crushing Eve's offspring crushes the head of Satan, that's Jesus. Except Romans 16 verse 20 says, no, actually, that's all of us. That's all of us, because that is what we were created to do. We were created to impose God's rule on his unruly creation. 
The next few chapters, chapter 4, verse, uh, uh, all the way through to the end of chapter 11, are basically talking about how the ramifications of that problem spread out throughout the whole of creation. And they trace the spread of sin. So we have in chapter 4 the first murder. Cain and his offering, Abel and his offering. And it's not the fact that God prefers meat to you know, wheat or whatever it goes, you know, that, whichever way around it is. The point is that um, Cain's offering is, is self-seeking and Abel's offering is self-sacrificing. And um, their, their names actually in the Hebrew bring that across. Uh, Cain's name is a word that's closely related to grabbing for yourself and Abel's name is a name that's closely related to you are mortal and you have to give everything away. So it's really God saying something quite profound about the nature of worship and what humanity is created to do. Um, Towards the end of that story, we also read about uh, Seth. And if you flick to the back, you'll see um, Adam and Eve's bloodlines. You'll see that Seth is a new um, line of grace that God is going to bring his salvation through. Abel, sadly, is killed by Cain. The the line of Cain is, by and large, not a good line, and um, it is terminated in the flood. Now, chapter 6 is quite a key chapter, and I I want to throw an idea out that is a very big idea, but it might help you read some other parts of the scriptures that are really complicated. Chapter 6 begins like this. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they choose. Uh, The Hebrew translation is slightly blunter as to what actually went on. Uh, Then the Lord God says, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal and it limits the days. And then it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Um, the also afterwards means after the flood, which is just about to be told, when the sons of, daughters, sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. So what's going on here? Well, sometimes people would say, well, this is just naughty people. This is not naughty people. It's fairly clear. Sons of God, daughters of human, so these, these are divine beings, sons of God. These are angelic beings. And... Um, They are, at the end of it, it says, in those days they were heroes of old, men of renown. That's a very positive translation. The Hebrew is is much um, more nuanced and doesn't say whether they're good or bad. It says these are people who are trying to make a name, which is exactly what we're going to read about when we come to Babel in a few chapters. In fact, in the middle we've got the the name Nimrod in chapter 10, and um, his name means rebellion, and he's going to be the person who founds the civilization of Assyria and the civilization of Babylon, which are going to be the two kingdoms that are going to try and destroy the idea of an earthly kingdom of God in Israel. So then we, we come then into the flood. Now, if you've ever thought God's a bit capricious and suddenly the flood seems a little of a divine overreaction, then I can understand that because, again, our translations don't help us. God says that he has to start again because of how great... Humanity's wickedness is on the earth and that every inclination of the heart of man is only evil all the time. But the point is it comes immediately after this passage about the Nephilim. Fortunately, there's a righteous person called Noah and um, 
after the Noah story, we're going to be told about the commission is given back to a new humanity. So Noah is going to be given the Adam and Eve commission. Um, we're given the rainbow covenant to know that God will never again do this again. As we carry on reading, we'll have in chapter 10, it's called the Table of the Nations, which talks about um, the near and far enemies, the people who are going to be trouble for Israel. But there's a group, there's a bloodline that isn't listed in those nations. And that is the, the significant thing that links the Nephilim passage at the beginning of chapter 6 with the Tower of Babel. Because in the Tower of Babel, they try and build a name for themselves. It links straight back to this men of the name, men of renown passage. Humanity has been commanded to, cover, to spread out and cover the earth. And in Babel, they decide instead to come together in one place and go to heaven by building themselves a big tower. So what's going on? Well, you remember the, um, the Elohim earlier, the angels that God was in his court with when he was talking about the creation of humanity? An ancient reader for these texts, one of the first Jews who read uh, the Old Testament, would actually see the Old Testament in very different light from me and you. Because it doesn't spell it out, it assumes a worldview that we don't easily understand. So... If you just like write down you know, your story about how things go, people don't know the way that you see the world, but they can infer it. Because as you're writing your story, you're showing this is the way that you see the world. When we read texts like, like Genesis, we bring our understanding of the world to how we read the text. And so sometimes the text doesn't really make sense to us because we're wearing the wrong glasses. We're wearing 21st century glasses rather than ancient Near Eastern millennia before Christ glasses and the worldview of the Bible is a worldview that's very different from ours it's laid out for us really well in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and in Deuteronomy chapter 32 it implies that that heavenly beings have been thrown down from God's court and now rule the nations um, and again um, because we don't find it easy to understand that a lot of the passage a lot of the, the uh, translations including ours, have actually translated something um, in a different way because it doesn't make sense to the modern mind. So Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 in my NIV says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, which was Babel, when he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the numbers of, sons of, of the sons of Israel, that doesn't make any sense at all. How could he do it according to the number of sons of Israel? Israel's way ahead in the story from this division and placing of people. The actual text says according to the number of the sons of God. And, and modern theologians are looking at it going, I don't understand that. Surely somebody's, somebody's copied it wrong. And so they've translated it differently. You'll notice if you look at page 210, you'll actually notice it says the Masoretic text, which is an ancient one, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, they all say <clears throat> that verse should be translated sons of God. Now you remember sons of God from Genesis chapter 6. These are divine beings. So the worldview of Deuteronomy 32 is that God has dethroned these rebellious angels. He's thrown them down to the earth and they have taken control as a judgment over some of the human nations. 
And that might help us understand some things that you're going to really struggle with as you read your Bible, which is why is Joshua and their conquest, why are they commanded to absolutely exterminate all the people that come in a particular place? That, that theory is called devoting things to destruction. And the, the, the little phrase is harem. Harem means nothing can be allowed to, supply, uh, to survive there. Well, the theological reading now would be that the enemies that, are be, that we're told to completely destroy are not the nations in the table of the nations of Genesis chapter 10, but they are the bloodline of these Nephilim. These are the, it's a rival bloodline to try and establish a kingdom upon the earth. And you cannot coexist with the offspring of fallen angels. So you've got to wipe it out. And so a better way of reading about the conquest genocides is that they are exterminating the bloodlines of these rebellious angels. In um, Deuteronomy 32's worldview, the, the fallen angels are seen as the overseers of the 70 nations that make up the world. And right the way through the early part of the New Testament is this theme that God, Yahweh, is against the other gods, which are no gods, really. They are fallen angels, powers, and principalities. That probably explains why the New Testament is so keen on exorcism uh, and the advance of the kingdom, because what needs to be dethroned is the rebellious angelic powers. Number 70 is really significant. Moses appoints 70 elders because the job of God's new family is to rule the world. The Sanhedrin had 70 members. When Jesus sends out the disciples, we sends out 12 because they're reconstituting Israel. But that Luke chapter 10 passage about the sending is definitely a sending of the 70, not 72. You know that sometimes some Bibles will say 70, some Bibles will say 72 definitely ascending. The point of the sending is that the 70 are symbolically sent out to start to take back the nations. Taking back the nations means you dethrone their angelic rulers, the Elohim, and that's why why when they come back, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. His kingdom is collapsing because the children of God are going out and doing their thing. We are now becoming in Christ, the people we're always meant to be, which is people with power and authority who can go out and rule and subdue a rebellious creation. So just to jump ahead and help whoever's doing Deuteronomy, I think it might be Abby, um, chapters 2 and 3, interestingly, the, the conquest of, in Deuteronomy starts with the Amorite giant kings, so Og and Sihon. And uh, we're told that the Anakim giants fill the land, according to the spies in um, Numbers 13. And if you want to see, wherever the instruction to Joshua and the army is, eliminate everything, practice kerem, then you'll find it's exactly those places where the Anakim are dwelling. And the only place they don't manage to do it, are it's listed, according to verse 22 of Joshua 11, that the only place they don't do it is Gaza, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And the unique common feature to those is their Philistine cities and where does Goliath come from later so Goliath is is one of these Nephilim Anakim offspring by the way Goliath being a giant may not mean quite what we think it means so um, again our translation would probably say nine foot tall actually probably about six foot six um, because that's that is the reading that the Dead Sea Scrolls have the Dead Sea Scrolls places Goliath at six foot six 
Still pretty big because your average um, Israelite was probably around about five foot tall at the time, if we compare to Egyptian mummies from that time. Again, the Israelite obsession with height might um, lie behind the contrast between Saul, who looks the part, he's the tallest, and David, who is the part. So chosen for his height, chosen for his heart. That's why David is the right person. So Sion and Og, it says Og, king of Bashan. Bashan is a bad place in the Bible. It's the region that includes Mount Hermon, which God is going to take back. And again, actually, Hermon sounds like Cherem. Any Jew would hear that immediately and would go, okay, bad place, bad things happen there. We need to not have anything to do with it. Deuteronomy 3.11 says that Og had a giant bed. And you might think, this is really bizarre. Why are they saying he's got a giant bed? Well, in the Babylonian ziggurats, which are the Babylonian temples, there was at the base, in the, the holiest place, a giant bed. Because it was thought that the god Marduk would come to meet his divine wife annually for a feast of lovemaking, which would be a blessing in fertility. So these are not random little notes. It's not saying, he was really big. Look how big his bed was. It's actually saying, this is like um, that cultic thing. And, and he is one of that cultic line. So what we've got here, the big picture of the Bible set out for us by Genesis 1 to 11 is that God created um, a heavenly realm and he created people to rule it, um, to administrate it for him. He created an earthly realm and he created us to administrate that for him. He wanted to bring two together. What happened was firstly that one and then our one rebelled. When that lot in the heavenly realms rebelled, they were thrown down to our one and we gave them access and therefore they started to rule and reign over some of the things that we've got. And so we're in a right pickle now because we are not being what God has called us to be and we have voluntarily come under the pagan powers. We have come under the spiritual powers and God is going to call his people out, start a new bloodline, re-establish his kingdom upon the earth so that he can achieve his ultimate game of dethroning the rebels and bringing the two parts of creation together so that he can have his whole household. By the way, in that, that means that the heavenly council and the earthly council, that we basically become the same. Which is why sometimes the Bible talks about us being divinized, becoming like angels, being glorified. We're God's glorious ones. You know, that's the big picture of the scripture. But of course, Genesis 1 to 11 just tell us what the world is like and why it's a mess. If the Bible ended there, it would be a bad news story. But it doesn't end there. What we've got in the rest of Genesis is we have got the story of God putting it right. And he starts to put it right by blessing an individual. And through that individual and his descendants, he's going to create a family of faith that will enable all of humanity to come back into its created destiny. The overall theme, though, of the rest of Genesis, sadly, is that Abraham's family are full of sin and folly, and they're constantly putting God's plan in jeopardy. So we're going to read about Abraham, who twice tries to give his wife away. Um, Sarah um, tries to force God's hand by having Abraham sleep with her maid. 
Isaac gives away his wife, doing exactly what his dad did. Um, Jacob is a thief and a liar who gets the blessing through deceit. Joseph is lacking wisdom and provokes his brothers. They try to kill him. We're going to read about rapes. We're going to read about seductions. We're going to read about lots of mess. And the point of this story is that if God's promises are going to be fulfilled, it's going to be his righteousness that does it, not theirs. And so let's have a look at the patriarchs quickly. So Abraham is the start of it all. Abraham, we're told, is born in Ur. Ur literally means the city. And um, we don't know exactly where it was, but it was almost certainly roughly where Babel was and where later Babylon is. So it's just typical, isn't it, that God goes to the source of the problem and he redeems it from a place that was known as being, you know, bad. Chapter 11 ends with Babel. Chapter 12 starts generations later. We don't know because we've gone from prehistoric to historic. But we go to that place and out of that place, God calls somebody to start the journey. And Abraham firstly travels up with his father to Haran, which is up in the north. And then he's called by God to leave and go to a land I will show you. In other words, he doesn't know where he's going, but he's being given this great promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Obviously, just read chapter 11 next to chapter 12. Chapter 11 was all about people trying to make a name for themselves. God says to to somebody who's grown up in that same place, that same area, I will make your name great, but I'll make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So working that out, you know, you've got some stories about Abraham and his brother Lot. Um, and his cousin Lot, sorry. And then you've got um, chapter 15, which is the covenant the Lord makes with Abraham. Because, of course, at this point, he's not Abraham. The Lord brings him out and says, Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. And Abraham says, it's going to die with me. I haven't got anybody to give it to. The Lord says, you don't need to pass it on to a near relative. It's going to be your own son, your own flesh and blood who will inherit. He says, come outside, look at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is like a defining moment in the scripture. Offspring like the stars could, be, could actually mean two things. The, the, the natural way of reading it is lots of them. Like the stars, in, in, to a Hebrew mind, probably also means slightly angelic. Either the stars and the angels are often conflated throughout the whole of scripture. It may say something about the nature of what God ultimately wants to do with humanity. Now, given that big promise and being a bit old, um, Sarah decides that it might be a good idea to try and help God. And so she volunteers Hagar, and Abraham conceives Ishmael. This was not God's plan. Uh, The Lord steps in again and says, look, no, I'm going to do it. He draws him into the covenant of circumcision. He changes Abraham's name. Abraham means exalted father. He changes, the Lord changes the name to Abraham which means father of many nations. And again, you know, like the stars, I said a minute ago, not just a reference of number, but maybe also of glorification. And I've put in the notes, you know, that scripture reminds us that we're made 
for a, for a time a little lower than the angels, but we will be made higher, we will judge the angels, and I've put some scriptures there already. So we read on in the story, we have you know, significant passages about the justice and judgment of God with Sodom and Gomorrah, um, God's grace in rescuing Abraham's nephew Lot. Um, then we have the birth of, of Isaac, and when Isaac is born, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. Um, you'll probably know that the Jewish race is descended through Isaac. The Arabs count their descent from Ishmael. So, so this is the source of a lot of history, isn't it? Um, why did God send them away? Well, because he has to make it clear how he's going to do it through. We'll notice later, actually, that when God does send um, Hagar and Ishmael away, he does also send them with blessing and with protection. And there's some lovely notes about God's grace running through this story. Then we've got the famous passage about the near sacrifice of Isaac. And the point in that is that Yahweh God will provide. It's God who will provide any sacrifices that are needed. Uh, and then finally we end with the death of Sarah in um, chapter 23. Overall, despite his doubts, Abraham is commended for believing God, he's commended for fearing God, and Hebrews says that he is the, he is the great example of us who through faith and patience receive what God is promising. Next one up in the patriarchs is Isaac himself. This is actually quite a short section. Isaac, there's really not a lot about Isaac in the Bible. Um, he is the child of the promise. Isaac means he laughs, and it's really about rejoicing in God. You know, where you're given a promise, you can't believe it, and then God does something amazing, and it's like, oh, it's laughter. He's, he's very passive. I find him a very frustrating character, Isaac. So as a boy, he didn't resist when his father prepared to sacrifice him. As a man, he gladly accepted the wife that other people chose for him. As a father, he played favorites and he alienated his wife. You know, he's just a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a wimp, I think. Um, however, he does marry a beautiful woman called Rebecca, and she bears twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, this is another miracle pregnancy. So again, God is really underlining that this is his creation, this bloodline. Um, and uh, there's a note here of sibling rivalry again. We see this right the way through the scripture as I'll summarize in a few minutes. The younger over the older. You know, the, the unfavored one over the favored ones. Those sorts of things going on all the time. That brings us into um, the Jacob story, which is quite a big one. Um, Jacob's life has essentially four stages, each of them marked by a personal encounter with God. So he starts off as a deceiver. Jacob literally means he grasps the heel, which figuratively means he's a deceiver. He lies. He manipulates Esau for the birthright. He tricks him out of the father's blessing. And then he has to run away because he's fearing reprisals. As he runs away, he has an encounter with God. He has a dream at Bethel. And um, he sees angels going up and down on a ladder. Now, interestingly, a ladder and a big ziggurat, one of those big temples. Do you remember those, seeing those pictures of the blocks that you step up? Probably pretty similar to something like that. And maybe angels going up and down reminds us of God's heavenly, king, heavenly court, his council, the people coming up and down to exercise his will, pass on his messages, do his judgments. So he starts off as a deceiver. The next part of his life, turn and turn around, he ends up being deceived. So he has life with Laban, 
And he has got his heart set on uh, marrying the woman he loves. He has to work to get her. And then Laban palms off the older daughter. And he has to work for another seven years to get the one that he wanted all along. Um, despite that, God bring, brings blessing on him, on his family, and on his flocks. Third season of his life is where he's someone who, who grabs. So he's returning to the promised land to reconcile with Esau. And on the way, he has a quick wrestle with God at the fort. And in that wrestle, he's maturing all the time. God changes his name and says, you're no longer Jacob. Instead, you are Israel. And Israel means he struggles with God. And uh, again, you have a little note there of reconciliation with Esau. And he shares God's blessings, which shows he's changed. And then moving in the fourth season from someone who grabs to someone who is grabbed. And he just, in the last stage of his life, is held firmly by God. And he'll only move when God moves him. And it's, it's a different, very, very different um, Jacob. Now, interspersing all of this, we've got two tragic stories, which I'm not going to cover particularly. But you've got the rape of Dinah in 34, and you've got the seduction of Judah and Tamar in 38. Um, and they're, they're just reminding us all along that this is not a straightforward story. These are, these are bad people. I put a little table in there of the sons of Jacob, and you'll notice that Jacob, um, firstly, it's through Leah, the older sister, big bloodline, and you'll see that the, uh, from that come Moses and Aaron eventually, and King David, and all the way down to, to Jesus of the tribe of Judah. You've got some middle tribes that we don't hear that much about. And then you've got the two tribes from Rachel, the beloved, the favored younger sister, Joseph, and Benjamin, and those are going to be big, significant tribes in the story later. Which brings us to the final patriarch, which is Joseph. Now, most people know his story. You've probably seen a film or a musical. Um, and it starts, and then it stops again. So that the story starts, and then the very next chapter, we have this terrible story with Judah and Tamar. And again, you think, why is it there? Well, possibly it's there to create a little bit of suspense, but it also raises questions about how righteous Jacob's children are. In other words, not very. So um, they're going to move on. They're going to grow. Judah prevents a murder in Genesis 37, but he proposes slavery. He's later going to act quite well, and ultimately, despite being born fourth, his righteousness is going to bring him into the leadership. There's a theme of hidden identities in the Judah and Tamar story. Uh, there's a theme that the powerless need to do something to take care of themselves. And, of course, it's Tamar that is the ancestor of King David. Joseph, we know the story really well, don't we? So he's the, the favorite son. He's gifted by God, but he's also unwise. He's overconfident. And uh, I've listed his story there. He has these dreams, which arouses jealousy from the brothers. They're sold into slavery. Goes into Potiphar's house. Um, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He resists, so she lies and gets him thrown in jail. In jail, he meets a couple of people, interprets their dreams. When one of them gets out, he forgets to mention Joseph, but he eventually rem remembers that Joseph can do some stuff with dreams, so he, Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. And the magicians can't do it because they're tapping into the pagan powers, but Joseph can because he knows the one true God who knows everything. And as a result, Joseph is then lifted up and placed in charge of Egypt and the, the preparation for the famine. He has his children, and then this big reconciliation story 
with his family. And towards the end of the story, another story of the blessing going to the wrong person. You know, everything not quite as it should be. The younger son, Ephraim, is blessed above the firstborn, Manasseh. And it's just these patterns through the stories. So repeated patterns. The patriarchs are full of deceit, but God is faithful. The families that they've got squabble and the, and the brothers fight. Their parenting is really poor. Um, and God often doesn't use the firstborn sons and make them the vehicles of his promise, but he often favours the younger or the unexpected children. So Abel, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they're the ones that God blesses. God moves, though, towards those who are rejected. He moved towards Hagar and Ishmael and blessed. He moves towards Leah, the unloved of the two sisters. He moved towards Joseph, the despised brother. Then, as we're coming into the end of the book, we've got the blessing that Jacob pronounces on his sons. And I've just put a little chart in there for you, which will show you some of the, uh, the ways that they're blessed. But you'll notice some of them don't get blessed. So Reuben is disqualified because of his sexual immorality. Uh, Simeon and Levi because of the revenge they take following the rape of Dinah. Judah, as I said a minute ago, eventually gets it right and so gets promoted. Um, and then some of the others. Joseph gets a blessing, a double portion, and actually we're going to read in Scripture that his sons become two tribes. Benjamin... Noted to be a warrior, that's going to produce people like Ehud and Saul and Jonathan later. You know, so just the, the passages themselves, um, they're very prophetic, those, those blessings of Jacob over his sons. Just to bring us into land, the point of this is that this is a book that's bracketed by blessing. Start with a blessing from God and we end with a blessing from Jacob. And if we were to look for a summary verse, it would probably be from the Joseph story. Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So that kind of brings us to the end. Now, it's a big story, and there are little bits of it that sometimes are really hard to understand. But the point is to get this big picture of a God who has created, and he's created something good, He's created it with free will. The free will has been exercised firstly by the heavenly realms and then by the earthly realms. That has led to a rebellion. And in that rebellion, there are bloodlines which are being birthed on the earth, but God is going to start his own. He's going to start somebody where he is bringing forth a new humanity that ultimately there'll be a savior who will bring a new humanity, restore us to our original created intent which is that we become the stewards of God with intimacy with him and authority for him. And we can bring with him the kingdom of God upon the earth so that heaven and earth will come again back where they should have been. Originally, God's intention was always that the heavenly realms and the earthly realms will become one as we read at the book of Revelation. And we will all be in his court around his throne, worshipping him forever. Amen. Amen. Well, there you go. That was a little bit less than an hour. Okay, so um, I'm not going to say any questions because I'll be here forever. But um, I would be very happy to answer one or two questions. Come and see me at the front. Probably the best. Um, if you'd like to have a think um, about it, look at, just look at the back. Um, I've put on, on the back of your notes just a really simple way 
of picking up on some of those themes, the beginnings, the confusion, the scattering, the history, the different types of events. And I think one of the, one of the really helpful things to think about when we think about the book of Genesis is how often Abraham and his family tried to blow it and God wouldn't let them. You know, it's just, Abraham and his family did this, but God. And the, the Lord is so committed to his, so committed to his people. He's looking for people whose hearts are right, but he's also quite happy to work with people who occasionally trip up and fail. So Abraham, in the New Testament, is this airbrushed perfection per figure. But actually, maybe that's the way God sees us as well. If our hearts are right and for him, he forgives us and covers over a multitude of our failures and sins. So you might like just to think about all the different ways that Abraham and his family tried to torpedo God's plan of salvation, and God just turned it around anyway. Fantastic. Have a good night. <laughs>